This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Quite a story on the program today. We welcome Brian Bouye. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing great, Bob. Thanks for having me. Brian Bouye is communications officer of the National Museum of Racing and Hall of Fame up in Saratoga Springs. And we're going to talk with him about a racing topic. Uh, Brian is author of the new book, Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. Uh, The book is uh, just out, published by History Press. I've heard a a bit about uh, John Morrissey over the years. Uh, I I guess I was going to ask you how you got interested in him, but to some extent, isn't it your job? Well, a bit. Um, Yes, obviously John Morrissey is best known as the founder of Saratoga Racecourse, which is uh, right across the street from where I work at the National Museum of Racing. Um, But I I became familiar with him um, a few years back. I was a a sports writer for the Troy Record, and uh, I stumbled across some background information on John Morrissey, who I'd never heard of at the time. Um, and he grew up in Troy, and uh, you know I made some connections there, and uh, wound up writing a couple articles about him back then, just kind of scratching the surface of his story. And uh, uh, over the years, I've written a couple magazine pieces about him. And uh, you know, at some point along the line, I decided, you know, after I, the more information I'd found about him, that this guy's life was just so incredible, it was uh, uh, meriting a book. And there really wasn't a, a full story out there about his life. And uh, I decided, you know, what the heck? Let's let's give it a whirl and try to write one. <laughs> Why not? Uh, and you mentioned Troy, and, and a lot of this has to do uh, with Troy, but where was uh, Mr. Morrissey born? He was actually born in Ireland. He was born in Ireland in 1831, and you know, like a lot of people at that time, the, the country was in very poor shape with, with famine and disease, and uh, everybody was trying to get out, and his parents took a you know, they took a boat over, and they, they wound up in New York City, but they didn't want to stay there. And uh, he was from a little uh, little village named Templemore, and a lot of those people wound up settling upstate in Troy and uh, West Troy, which is now Water Valite. And uh, his family made his way up there, and uh, that's where he grew up. Hmm. And his father uh, worked uh, kind of odd jobs along the Hudson River? Yeah, he was a day worker. And, uh, you know, along along that time, you know, most of the industry in Troy was, you know, river transportation and cargo transportation. And, you know, he had a lot of odd jobs and uh, worked in the factories and the mills and, you know, just barely made enough money to scrape by. But uh, John Morrissey, as he grew up, uh, became a, a big man and a, and a strong man. Yeah, that's it. I mean, he started working in the mills and the factories when he was, you know, 11, 12 years old. And, you know, he started developing a, a very, you know, barrel-chested physique. And, uh, you know, basically, you know, a lot of people were confrontational back then, and they basically so- solved a lot of their problems with their fists. And, you know, he was getting in, you know, brawls with, you know, grown men and beating them most of the time and started developing a reputation and uh, started getting involved in a lot of, you know, cargo theft and gang activity and, uh you know, just became kind of a known guy along the docks of Troy and really started building a reputation that way. And he went to jail or was sent to jail at some point? Yeah, he had a couple of incidents before he was 18. There were, uh, um, you know, assaults. Uh, you know, there was an assault with battery. There was one with an intent to kill where he actually served a couple of months uh, before he was 18 years old. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was, he was a violent guy at that time in his life. And as a young man, he moved to New York City and picked up an unusual nickname. They called him Old Smoke. 
Yeah, when he, uh, you know, when he was about 18, 19 years old, he went to New York a couple times, and you know, he was trying to, you know, build some money for himself, and uh, uh, there was, you know, money to be made as, as, uh, and basically they called it a shoulder hitter, which was uh, an immigrant runner where they would come in and they'd take the immigrants off the boats, and um, you know, they would basically force them to, to vote for whatever political party they were affiliated with, and uh, John got kind of in a tussle with with a gentleman named Tom McCann. Uh, I wouldn't call him a gentleman. He was, you know, one of those brawlers of the area, too. And uh, basically what happened was, you know, there was a lot of talk back and forth between these two. A rivalry had developed. And uh, one night, Morrissey came into a uh, place called uh, Stanwick's Hall. It was a, a hotel in New York. And uh, him and McCann got into a brawl in the basement. There was a, a pistol gallery, and it was the middle of winter, and there there was a stove in the middle of the room and these two started brawling and they knocked over the stove and all of the coals poured out onto the floor and McCann pinned Morrissey's back on top of these burning coals and it, it set his back on fire and ripped through his shirt. Um, but Morrissey didn't, you know, didn't give up the fight. He got up and he actually beat the, beat the living bejesus out of, out of Tom McCann. And, uh, um, from that moment, you know, he was known as old smoke because his back was literally on fire. So it was kind of a colorful story to, you know, build his reputation there. And I presume this was not the Tom McCann who, uh, started the shoe company. No, certainly not. Certainly not. Now, and uh, our hero, if you will, or John Morrissey, now goes to California. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, everybody's heard, you know, a lot of people who are familiar with Morrissey, they, they know some of the stories about him being a fighter and, you know, his, his gambling halls and everything. But, uh, you know, he was in New York kicking around for a couple of years, and, you know, he really wasn't making the money that he had hoped for. Um, and this was the time of the gold rush. So he and, uh, you know, a buddy of his, this guy named Dad Cunningham, uh, they set out on this kind of wild adventure, and they wound up in California. Um, but by the time they got there, most of the uh, the gold had been staked, and, you know, he started getting involved in, in gambling and card games and pharaoh uh, and stuff like that. And he also was hoping to, you know, get into the ring. He had been in a little bit of a verbal rivalry um, at that time. There, there were a couple of guys that he was trying to trying to get into fights with and everything. And he wound up getting into a, uh, a ring match with with a guy named George Thompson, who was a, a boxer and trainer and had a you know somewhat of a reputation there. Um, the, the heavyweight champion of the world was a guy named Tom Hire at the time, and. Uh, he had been he had been trained by Thompson and Hire was at the point where he didn't really want to fight anymore. He was more interested in drinking and carousing with women and doing all that stuff. But uh, Thompson was willing to get in the ring, and this is where Morrissey you know developed his reputation for the first time. They had a fight um, on a little place called Mare Island, which was off the coast of San Francisco, and they got in the ring. and Morrissey uh, was was dominating the guy after a couple of tough rounds. I mean, Morrissey was not a real real scientific boxer, so Thompson kind of had the best of it early. Uh, but Morrissey turned the tables with his power and his ability to take a punch. And uh, Thompson, you know, wound up uh, having some late fouls on Morrissey, and Morrissey won the fight, and, you know, that started his reputation as a boxer. And ultimately, he fought a boxer uh, named Yankee Sullivan. I believe that's now has us up to 1853. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, when he came back from California, you know, he had, Morrissey had made some money from, from his share of the purse. Um, he had made some money on the gambling tables, and he came back, but he was still looking to... Uh, you know, kind of, kind of enhance his reputation. Um, Yankee Sullivan at the point was was recognized as the champion because Hire had retired because he'd refused to fight anybody. Um, and Sullivan, you know, kind of based on his record and the fact that he had 
fought higher before. Um, you know, he didn't win, but he had fought him, you know, credibly, and he was viewed as the champion at the time. So Morrissey, you know, wound up badgering, you know, Yankee Sullivan until he got him into the ring, um, and they went into they fought in a place called Boston Corners, um, which is it was on the borders of Massachusetts and Connecticut, um, you know, kind of down past the Hudson Valley, and. Um, the fight went 37 rounds, and you know there's accounts of it saying it was one of the most bloody battles in in boxing history. I mean, um, you know these these men did not wear gloves. They they fought. You know, a round ended with knockdowns, and the fight would go on until somebody couldn't continue or it was declared. Um, and what happened in this fight was Sullivan, who was a lot smaller. I mean, John Morrissey was uh, about six foot, six foot one, 180 pounds. Sullivan was 20 years older. He was about five foot nine, 145 pounds, but he was one of those guys who could dart around the ring and use his speed and quickness. And Morrissey had been in brawls, but he had never been in a real scientific boxing match. And uh, Sullivan controlled the match for a number of rounds, uh, but as the fight progressed, you know, he he wasn't doing the damage to Morrissey. And then Morrissey started, you know, his heavy blows really started to take their toll on Sullivan and by the 37th round Morrissey was just hammering and hammering him and at one point he held him by the throat and was punching him in the face so many times um, you know that uh, Sullivan's cornermen came into the ring and it, it was a general brawl that ensued after that um, and from there the, the referee tried to bring them back to, to scratch is what they called it and uh, Sullivan would not continue or was unable to continue depending on the account you believed and Morrissey became heavyweight champion of the world because of that. We're talking with Brian Bouye, who's author of Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. And we've yet to get to uh, Saratoga Racing, but there's uh, at least some more on on his uh, boxing career. Uh, he had to defend his title at some point, did he not? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in, in boxing at that point, you know, most of the brawls were kind of informal out of the ring, but um, he won the title in 1853, and he did not fight again, at least officially in the ring, until 1858. Um, during that time, he was, you know, setting up casinos and gambling ventures and table games, and, you know, he became a wealthy man, but he still wanted to fight. Um, but he'd gotten married, and his wife, Susie, was adamant that, you know, John, it's time that... Uh, you kind of become more of a you know respected member of society. They had some monetary interests, and he was starting to become recognized in political circles. But um, he received a challenge from a guy named John Heenan, who also grew up in Troy. Um, it, it's kind of interesting that these, these two were kind of rivals in their youth, and their parents had a rivalry uh, that had gone on. But uh, Morrissey finally agreed to fight Heenan under the condition that you know this would be his last fight. He promised his wife that win or lose, um, this would be his last time in the ring. Uh, so they wound up going up to fighting at a place called Long Point, Canada, which was just across the border. Um, boxing was illegal in these in these days, and they had to kind of keep these events as secret as possible uh, to get away from the authorities. So um, Morrissey worked himself into absolutely incredible shape for this for this fight, and uh, you know Heenan was a big man as well. He was a little bit bigger than Morrissey. He was about six foot two, about 200 pounds, and um, a lot of people didn't think Morrissey'd be able to win this fight, but he took control early. Um, Heenan hurt himself during the fight. He he injured his hand on a ring post, and Morrissey dominated him. And in the 11th round, he he knocked him out, and uh, you know it was a brutal, brutal victory. And he retired from the ring as an undefeated heavyweight champion. And that was in 1858, right? That's correct. Yep. But uh, and, and maybe I should have asked you this in a, di- a different order. But of the uh, kind of leading up to that fight is when uh, Morrissey, as you uh, alluded to. Uh, started into gambling or started having 
uh, houses or gambling houses and so forth, and really was, uh, I don't know what you'd say, working with the political machines as kind of an enforcer? Yeah, he, you know, there, the, Tammany Hall in New York City was, you know, the big political machine, and they were always, you know, dealing with rivalries with, uh, um, you know, if, if people are familiar with the movie Gangs of New York, you know, you kind of see some of this, um, you know, posturing back and forth, and the, the political leaders needed muscle on the street to get the votes. Everybody was pandering for the, uh, the immigrants that were coming in and trying to get these people registered and to support their parties. And Morrissey basically went around and rounded up people for these uh, political groups. You know, Boss Tweed was the leader um, was was the leader of the uh, Tammany Hall faction at that point. And Morrissey ran a gang called the Dead Rabbits, and they wound up getting into uh, you know a lot of you know disputes over turf. Um, you know, with a gentleman named Bill the Butcher, uh, which you know led to a lot of brawls and confrontations. And one of Morrissey's gang members actually killed uh, Bill Poole. And uh, but Morrissey was, you know, he was viewed as a rising star because he was a man who could get things done. And uh, Tammany Hall set him up with some of these gambling halls, and they made sure that the, you know, police didn't interfere. So he became a very wealthy man at this point. And Morrissey started a gambling house in Saratoga Springs in 1861. Was he the first uh, to do that, or was gambling? It's kind of hard to tell. I mean, there there were some other, you know, kind of low-level stuff. In the first house he had in Saratoga, uh, it was on Matilda Street, um, you know, and it wasn't a very big place, but it, it kind of served as, you know, the future of what could be done here. And, you know, he was making money, um, and he was kind of looking at, you know, the summer crowd was already coming into Saratoga. I mean, horse racing wasn't here yet, but Saratoga already had a reputation as a spa city and a summer resort. And, uh, you know, Morrissey saw a way that, you know, he could make some money, entertain these people. And uh, that's kind of where he started getting the idea of, you know, horse racing at the time was kind of at a standstill because we were coming up to the Civil War era and most of the horses in the country were requisitioned for the armies and uh, you know there, were, there was even an encampment on the track in Kentucky so horse racing was kind of at a standstill but there wasn't really fighting up in New York and Morrissey thought you know if he could get some of these uh, horsemen from Kentucky and Ohio and Virginia and some of these other places to come up that it would be a perfect idea to bring it to Saratoga um, enhance the gambling aspect of everything and, and that's where he went with it. What about the Civil War Morrissey did not join the fight. No, um, he, he was not. He was not involved in the fight. He actually um, was was kind of what a lot of people in the North thought. You know that this thing didn't really affect them. Uh, most of the fighting was going on down south, and you know Morrissey was kind of a man who had enough power at this point that he could do whatever he wanted, pretty much. Um, you know, so by the time 1863 rolls around, and, and he's thinking of an idea of bringing horse racing to Saratoga. You know, we're only a month past the battles of Gettysburg and Vicksburg, so the war is raging on in the country, but, you know, he saw an opportunity in Saratoga. Mm. So he started um, already, uh, uh, harness racing came first, Is it, would that be correct to say up there? There was, there was some intermittent harness racing in Saratoga. There was a, a trotting track that was built in 1847, uh, which is currently where the Oklahoma track is across from the Saratoga race course. And there had been some meets there over the years. They'd had state fairs there, and they'd had um, exhibitions of speed is what they called it because they weren't allowed to actually have real uh, betting horse racing. So, so Morrissey saw that the track was still there. Um, he was able to organize this with some you know, influential people in the country. Uh, Commodore Vanderbilt got involved, um, John um, William Travers and a couple others early on. And they came up with a four-day meet that was at this place called Horsehaven, which was the former trotting track. And they got they got representatives from 14 different states. Canada came in. 
Um, this went for four days, and you know they didn't really know what to expect, but the uh, uh, the response to it was exceptional. I mean, they had uh, the opening day; they had more than 5,000 people attend, and the racing was viewed as very good, but the track was uh, not sufficient for what they were looking for. So they made money. They did well with it. It was very popular. People came in, but they needed something bigger, and that's where they came uh, to the idea of building a bigger track across the street. Hmm. And uh, I'm looking at an article that you had written. The f- first winner at Saratoga was a, a filly named Lizzie W.? Yes, that is correct. Uh, the first race, uh, she beat a colt named Captain Moore. Um, the jockey for for Lizzie W was a was a one eyed was a one eyed African American, um, and Lizzie W actually came back later in that meet and won another race. Mm. So, as you say, Morrissey partners with with rich people like uh, uh, William Travers and uh, Commodore Vanderbilt, and they they build a, a new track. I mean, wh- where the track is today. Correct. Um, yeah, the thing about it was, you know, Morrissey was a very wealthy man, but um, to get this to actually have, you know, the, the legs that it needed, he needed men of social prestige. Um, you know, Morrissey was still kind of viewed in some circles as, you know, a former boxer, kind of a roughneck, a guy who made his money in gambling, um, and it wasn't the sort of image that they wanted to have out there. So you bring in William Travers, who who knew a little bit about racing. He was very, he was a popular lawyer in New York City. He was a member of 27 gentlemen's clubs. He was well known. Um, Commodore Vanderbilt at the time was arguably the wealthiest man in the country, um, and you know they brought in Leonard Jerome, who later um, opened up five racetracks on his own in the New York City area. So he brought in men that had prestige. He he worked well with the local government here. Uh, the politicians were you know in support of him, and uh, you know they opened Saratoga Racecourse in 1864. And it is still open as we see today. It is the oldest sporting venue in the country. And Morrissey also started a gambling house that ended up, isn't it, the, the where the Canfield Casino is? Correct. It became the Canfield Casino and it is now the uh, the Saratoga Springs History Museum uh, right, right in Congress Park. Um, that opened in 1870. And, you know, if you look at the building today, it's kind of hard to imagine. But at the time, you know, this was viewed on the equal of, you know, Monte Carlo. Um, this, this, was, this was the Las Vegas of America at the time. Uh, it had every reputation as being the finest gambling hall in the country. Um, he spent $190,000 as initial investment on the property, but the money he put into the place was incredible. I mean, he was buying, you know, uh, Persian rugs that were $40,000, uh, chandeliers that cost $60,000, um, he, he bought the, uh, the, the the finest wines and the finest foods. Uh, he had he had faro dealers there that were making forty five hundred dollars a month. Um, everybody came to this place. I mean, former presidents Ulysses Grant would come here. Uh, Mark Twain was was a guest at the <laughs> casino here. Um, he brought in all the wealthy patrons, and, and it made tons of money year after year after year. Mm. And then uh, John Morrissey uh, goes into politics. Yeah, this was, you know, this was kind of an interesting and unexpected thing in his life. I mean, um, you know, he's making money with the casinos. He's He's got Saratoga Racecourse, which, you know, he owns a controlling interest in, and he's also running the place day to day, you know, you know, keeping the reputation up and making sure that it was well-respected. Um, he had a falling out with Tammany Hall. I mean, this was the organization that initially backed him. Um, and they, they were kind of trying to appease Morrissey because he was seeing all the corruption within the organization with Boss Tweed and all the money they were ripping off. And, you know, he was starting to grumble about it. And everybody in Tammany Hall knew how popular Morrissey was and that if he said something, he could get, you know, a lot of the immigrants, especially the Irishmen behind him. Um, so Tammany Hall, to kind of calm Morrissey off, um, what they did was they backed him in a run for Congress, and he won easily. 
Um, you know, so he served his first term, and after that, it, things got really, really bad with Tammany Hall, and he wound up running against their representative, and he won again. And, uh, yeah, he served two terms in Congress, and he was later elected to the New York State Senate. Mm. And, um, and by the way, I mean, uh, Brian Bouye is uh, with us. He's author of the book Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. So after serving two terms in Congress and um, – while he's in the in the state senate, I believe maybe into his second term, he uh, gets ill. Well, he he won his first term and, and served two years, and he was up for reelection. And uh, he he started campaigning, and he would be out four or five times a night. And you know this was when the weather was bad, and you know he wound up getting getting a really bad cold. Uh, it turned into pneumonia, and you know he was having trouble uh, making the campaign stops each night. I mean they were going around in raw weather, and he was in an open carriage. Um, and he became very ill. He was having problems, you know, with, with severe coughing and bronchi- bronchial issues. Um, so his doctors recommended he go down south for a while. So he wound up going down to Florida. Um, he had a bit of a recovery, and he was feeling better, and then he came back up uh, to New York. He won the election. Um, you know, he got his second term, and he was ready to serve that. But he, he became seriously ill uh, when he got back to Saratoga, and they wound up putting him up in the uh, uh, the Adelphi Hotel, which had just opened at the time, and uh, it didn't take long for the illness to, to really set in, and, and he died uh, May 1st, 1878. Hmm. And he was only 47. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, you know, this guy had such an amazing full life. I mean, he goes from uh, an illiterate youth in gang wars to, you know, going to New York, going to California in the gold rush, you know, the heavyweight championship, uh, establishing Saratoga race course, all the, all the gambling success and, and the congressmen and he did all of this by 47. I mean, it's incredible all the things he accomplished. Tell us about his funeral. Yeah, it was, it was um, you know, when he died at the Adelphi, I mean, um, they wound up actually taking his body and putting it in the lobby um, on display for a couple of days so people could pay their respects uh, up here in Saratoga. And um, they, they came lined up around the corner for, you know, uh, for, for hours to come see him. Um, he was the lead story in all of the New York papers at that time. Um, the Times dedicated, you know, I think it was seven full columns to his life. Um, but they wound up going back to Troy, his his hometown, um, and he was laid to rest there in the St. Peter's Cemetery. And uh, they they estimated anywhere between fifteen and twenty thousand people came out for his uh, for his funeral. So he was very popular because people viewed him as, you know, he wasn't one of these silver spoon in your mouth types that you know it was handed everything. He he fought for everything he had in his life, and you know the common people really really respected this man. Mm. And uh, after his death, he was. Uh, honored by both the boxing and the the racing uh, industries, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it, it took time. I mean, uh, you know, his legacy was kind of, you know, brushed over uh, for, for quite a while. I mean, the big races at Saratoga were known as the Traverse Stakes, and, uh, you know, other people's names were put out there. But um, in, the, in the 1990s, he wound up getting elected to the International Boxing Hall of Fame for his contributions there. Um, and around 2003, um, you know, Naira, which, you know, took over the management of the track in the 50s, they didn't have a stake race named after him. Uh, there was a Morrissey Stakes um, way back in the 1880s, uh, but that faded out after poor management and the track kind of killed a lot of the races. But they came up with the John Morrissey Stakes and uh, the races for New York Breds, and they run it each year in August, and it's, uh, it's a great tribute for them. Well, Brian Bouye has been a, a great uh, fun talking with you about uh, John Morrissey. The book, again, is called Bare Knuckles and Saratoga Racing, The Remarkable Life of John Morrissey. It's published by Arcadia 
History Press. The author, Brian Bouye, is a communications officer uh, at the National Museum of Racing and uh, Hall of Fame on Union Avenue in storied Saratoga Springs. Well, thank you very much, uh, Brian, and I hope that you have a good day. Well, I appreciate you guys having me on. Thank you. This is Bob Cudmore with a reminder. We are seeking funds for the Historians podcast. You can send your donations to our GoFundMe campaign. That's GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2016. Thanks to all the people who have donated so far. We really appreciate it. Uh, We've got a a pretty big goal of uh, $2,500. In addition to donating online, you can also donate in the mail. A lot of uh, the folks do that. Uh, Make out the check to Bob Cudmore. Send to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. And as always, thank you very much. If you missed this information, you can uh, find it uh, on my website, bobcudmore.com. Wanted to put in a couple of plugs for organizations that uh, I work with in the Amsterdam area. The Amsterdam Free Library is uh, sponsoring or is on the ballot, if you will, May 17th, the next uh, school budget uh, vote in Amsterdam will include a vote to fund the libraries in both Amsterdam and Fort Hunter. Uh, So uh, if you live in that district, the library would appreciate your support. And Historic Amsterdam League will be having another uh, history tour uh, this uh, coming summer. It's going to take place on Saturday, June 4th, and they're going to tour the Reed Hill and Park Hill neighborhoods of Amsterdam. Reed Hill at one time uh, was known as Cork Hill. It was kind of an Irish enclave, uh, then was settled by a lot of Polish Americans, and uh, now a lot of uh, Latinos live on uh, Reed Hill, and the same over on Park Hill. Uh, Park Hill, I don't believe, ever had the uh, distinction of being an Irish neighborhood, but it certainly uh, has been, and to some extent is still populated by a number of uh, people from Poland. So it also, that particular, those neighborhoods is where I came from, uh, where I grew up was on Pulaski Street on Reed Hill, so I've always been uh, fond of those neighborhoods in Amsterdam. And I recently did a column for the Daily Gazette, Focus on History, about the Polish-American leader Michael J. Wittrall. Long before Polish-American John Gomułka was elected mayor of Amsterdam in 1967, Michael J. Wittrall, who never held elected office, was uh, known as the city's unofficial Polish mayor. Wittrall was born near Krakow, Poland, in 1882 and immigrated to Scranton, Pennsylvania when he was 14 with his mother, uh, whose name was Sophie, Sophie then returned to her native land to retrieve another son. Sophie and her other son never returned. Sophie died in Poland. Michael Wittrall worked in Scranton's coal mines for six months, then moved to Reed Hill, one of Amsterdam's two Polish enclaves. He married a woman uh, named uh, Marie Brodzowski in 1904 and sold life insurance. Marie died, or I'm sorry, her name was was Mamie Brodzowski. Uh, Mamie died two years later in childbirth in 1907. Then Michael Wittrall married Mamie's sister, Josephine, in 
He fathered seven children, the son from the first marriage, plus five daughters and another son from the second marriage. The Wittralls took up residence in the Brzezowski's' two-family home, 26 Cornell Street. Wittrall became an entrepreneur. He founded a pharmacy, later owned by a daughter and son-in-law, and operated his Krupsak's pharmacy on Hibbard Street. Next door was Wittrall's furniture store, managed by one of his sons. The father, M.J. Wittrall, operated a coal and oil uh, company. He also was a founder of what came to be known as the Polish Bank and the local Polish National Alliance. He built homes in Amsterdam, was part owner of a home or uh, of a Fort Plain knitting mill. Also, he was the grandfather of a woman who went on to uh, success in statewide politics, Mary Ann Krupsack, uh, who became lieutenant governor of New York State after serving in the Assembly and the State Senate. If you want more information, you can find the full story on my website, uh, bobcudmore.com, or link to mohawkvalleyweb.com. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.